Welcome to the 136th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Dan, and I have Brian with me. Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Glad to be here. And we are in the midst of a theme month that has turned into theme months because we've extended it because we just had so many movies in the, the theme that we wanted to talk about. And I think we've extended it even more by making a bunch of these multi-part double header triple quadruple header episodes that's right we're going quad movie this time <laughs> the theme month is movies about making movies month and as you would guess from the title these are movies where one of the main subjects of the film itself is the making of a movie and this week I've tried to, whenever I pull something in, do something that's different from what we've already done so far this month. So I thought this time I would pull in a backstage melodrama. And I decided to go with A Star is Born. I said at the end of last episode that we would talk about the 1954 one, but Brian and I just kind of collectively said F it and watched all of the versions of A Star is Born. And it turns out that that is a lot. That is four movies. So this is a movie that has been made four times with very similar plot structure, um, but something different to say about the entertainment industry in each one of them, I would say. Right. And so Dan, at the end of last episode, said, okay, I'm picking the 1950s installment. And if you want to watch another one, you can. And I knew, I mean, that was just laden with obligation. <laughs> I knew he was going to watch all four. And so I made sure that I did too. And it was a good experience, I think. I'm glad I watched all four. Yeah, I agree. I had only seen the 2018 version. So I should say what the years are. So we know what we're talking about. There's four of them. 1937. That is directed by William Wellman starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. So each of them have a young rising starlet and an over-the-hill star as the two main characters. So Janet Gaynor and Frederick March are in the 1937 version. The 1954 version, directed by George Cukor. How do you say his name? Cukor? Cukor? Do you know? It might be Cukor. Cukor? George Cukor, who made plenty of big production numbers. I think this was his very last film or one of his last, uh, did a, a big, uh, Cinerama widescreen version with Judy Garland and James Mason as the two stars. And then in 1976, a director named Frank Pearson made a version, but really the, the creative voice was Barbara Streisand. 
She was the executive producer. Right. The Amazon sidebar said that she kind of wrangled it out of his hands by the end. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. And she co-stars in addition to Chris Christopherson. And then in 2018, actor Bradley Cooper, in his directorial debut, directed a version of the film with the same name, with him as one of the one of the stars and Lady Gaga as the other star. And yeah, four versions, all called A Star is Born, all approximately the same story, but all very different, I would say. Um, certainly... You can almost divide them in half. I think the first two have a lot in common and the second two have narrative wise more in common. Um, although they, it's very interesting watching them all in a week and I watch them in chronological order, the different ways that like different beats and images are kind of like weaved in from that might've been missed from like one version to the next version. It's kind of interesting, right? It's like, things kind of skip a generation and then they come back. Right. Yeah. And uh, one thing I learned, I actually just learned this yesterday. And if we had another day, I would have also watched this, but the first a star is born was, was inspired heavily by a 1932 film called what price Hollywood. And I have read that it's very similar, but I didn't watch it, but I believe that was from a different studio, right? Yes, so I think it was a thing where... Oh, no way. Hold on. Is this right? George Cukor actually directed What Price Hollywood. Man, I didn't know that. So that kind of like ties it all together. He like he did his version of the story again in 1954, 22 years later. Man, now I got to go see this to see how similar it is <laughs> to the, the 1954 one. Yeah, the sense I got was that Warner Brothers liked that, and so they redid it but unofficially and slapped a different title on it. And then all the subsequent versions have been in-house at Warner Brothers. Right. So, Brian, here, here's what's interesting about them. So I said the first two are kind of a pair, the 1937 and the 1954. And the reason that they're kind of more similar than the latter two is because they are about the Hollywood studio system. So in this case, being a star means being a studio actor on the studio payroll and being a subject to the Hollywood studio system image manipulation and control and all of the glories and depravities therein, I would say. Whereas the latter two, the 1976 and the 2018, the studio system didn't exist anymore, and it was much more nebulous to be a movie star. There wasn't like any sort of gatekeeper in quite the same way. It didn't have the same allure that it did when everything ran through this small handful of, of corporations that completely dominated the movie industry, rather than being a little more fractured like it is today. So what they replaced it with instead was being a rock star, being or a pop star, as the case may be, being a big music star, um, because that is a way that you can kind of more organically become a zeitgeist of the moment. It's like you don't really see that with movie stars anymore, but you can see that with music artists where they kind of surge up and they kind of have the household name recognition 
and can draw millions in just by themselves more so than than movie actors today. So I thought it was kind of an interesting and natural evolution. Like it, it is kind of the parallel, but I do think something is lost when you go out of the first two, because as much as anything, they're a commentary on the studio system. And some of the plot manipulations just don't make quite as much sense in the rock star era. Right. Plus, then they're not movies about making movies. That's true. Yeah. So that's why 54 and 37 apply. But yeah, I saw the progression going from you had the 1937 one and then the change in the 1954 version is they made it a musical. So that was like where Judy Garland's talents lay. And so they made the change then. And then every subsequent iteration is also a musical. They just really emphasize that aspect. And the 37 and the 54 were also notable because they were early demonstrations of a groundbreaking technical achievement in filmmaking. So the 1937 was one of the first big Technicolor films. And 1954 was one of the first big Cinerama, which was super widescreen films. I was really struck by how they used the widescreen in the 50s version. Like, I don't think I've seen a movie that uses it quite that way, where, like, there will be scenes where it's just two people, but they're sitting way at opposite ends of the frame from each other, like, to show off how wide it is. And I don't know how you would ever show this on TV. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Well, because I think, famously, the Cinerama screen was like kind of curved. So it's like, yeah, not really what you would see at a, at home. It was like, cause this in the fifties, remember the big thing was that everybody was getting a TV. And so the movie studios were freaking out. What can we do to get people in, in the seats? And then we can make everything bigger and more of a spectacle in a way that a grainy little TV can't replicate. So make the screens bigger, bigger, bigger. And that's also around when you saw some novelties like 3D and such in the 50s too. Right. One thing I didn't talk about last week, I mentioned my good theater-going experience at the Silver Center when I went and saw the Raiders adaptation. Another really good screening that I went to there was they had a marathon back-to-back of 50s 3D movies. So I saw... House of Wax, which is probably my all-time favorite 3D movie with Vincent Price, and also Creature from the Black Lagoon, and the woman from Creature from the Black Lagoon was there, the one that he's, like, carrying around on the poster. So she was, like, one of the very last living Universal Monsters actors because that one was already, like, made in the mid-50s, so way later than the other Universal Monsters movies, and also women tend to outlive men. Yeah, and she was probably quite young, early 20s or something, who knows. But um, yeah, because that's still like 60 years after it was filmed, you know. So I think the 1976 and the 2018 also kind of introduce some to the film language that was kind of big at the time. Like 1976, I noticed had a lot of like rock documentary type footage not for the whole movie but there was times when it was kind of filmed almost docudrama style did you notice that brian i did for the film history class i took last semester we watched a movie called medium cool from 1969 
where the main character is a TV news cameraman. And he kind of goes around chasing exploitative stories like an ambulance chaser. And that had kind of this same vibe where it's like borrowing the cinema verite look. Yeah. Or the direct cinema style. So one thing that maybe we can regroup on after we kind of talk through the different beats of the movie, the, the plot here, Brian, is what does each one say about its time period? And what do you think works about each one of them and doesn't work about each one of them? Um, because I think each of them have their strengths and weaknesses, I'd say. Yeah, I agree. So why don't we just kind of dive in? So it, it actually is kind of pretty interesting how tightly you can match up all of the movies on a plot by plot basis. So like mentioned, the first two kind of more closely match. And I would say the the first half of 1954 and 37 are kind of similar and have the same approximate shape. But I really noticed the second half was almost like a scene for scene remake. Well, it was clear that they like reused sections of the script. Like, word for word, the dialogue is the same. Yeah, yeah, whole lines. Did you ever read those books as a kid where it had, like, transparent plastic pages and you could flip them over and it would, like, add layers to the scene? Oh, man, I forgot about those, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking here, where it's like each one is a little different. You can overlay it, but you can see where parts match up. I like that. That's a good, that's a good comparison. So each of the four stars are born open with the character Esther. So that's, I think her name in the first three, I'm just going to call her Esther in the 2018 version. The last one, Lady Gaga's character is named Allie, A-L-L-Y rather than Esther, which is kind of an old fashioned name, I guess. So I'll just call her Esther throughout this. So at the beginning, Esther is kind of grinding as a small time entertainer and She's clearly pretty talented, but also unnoticed in the grand scheme of the industry and doesn't really have a clear vision of how to make it big. So the first one in particular, the 1937, has this kind of prelude where we see her at home and nobody quite believes that she would actually go out into Hollywood, except her grandma believes in her. And so her grandma gives her some money and she hops on a bus and rides out to Hollywood and kind of steps out like sunshine on her face and like, I made it here I am. And then struggles over the next X months trying to actually make it. Cause she doesn't really know what that even means. I like the grandma. Yeah, she was good. I liked her too. She has the pioneer spirit. <laughs> She's like, you need to go out and follow your dreams. Even if you're hungry, you need to strive. That's the American way. And it is all it's also really funny how you just have visions of like where the United States was at that time, because we're talking like 80 years separating the first one and the last one. And that's like more than a third of the United States history. You know, that's what I kept being struck by in that one is just how long ago 1937 is. And it's disguised a little bit because it's the earliest color movie I think I've ever seen. Two years ahead of Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. And also, like, I guess in the midst of the Great Depression, right? Wasn't that roaring pretty big in 1937? Or I guess the opposite of roaring? Right. 
Right. So I think that adds a layer onto her desire to not have a normal life and like dream of being a big star, you know? But I think for the other three, it kind of starts more in Medias race where she's kind of already made the decision that she wants to be an entertainer. And that's kind of what she's doing as her hustle. And she's kind of got a small time gig in each one of them. So in 1954, she's kind of like a stage dancer. And that's Judy Garland. And in 1976 and in 2018, she sings at nightclubs at the start of the movie. Meanwhile, the other main player is Norman Maine in the first two. And then in 1976, it's John, but he goes by Jack, which is going to be relevant because in the 2018, his name is Jackson, but he also goes by Jack. Right. So, yeah, you got Jack Norman and Jack Maine. So he lives on in a sense. Yeah, that's a good point. Like they each kind of pulled in parts of it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Um, Chris Christopherson was actually a musician prior to being an actor. I don't know exactly when he made the transition, but he is kind of one of those dual threat type guys. And I kind of thought Bradley Cooper was simultaneously doing a sort of Chris Christopherson riff. But it, it also in the movie points out that he's doing um, what's the name of the actor who plays the brother in that Sam Elliott. And I didn't pick up on that until, well, it takes a while to reveal that Sam Elliott is his brother. Like, I didn't put that together until about halfway through the movie. But then shortly after that, there's like a, a spat between them. And Elliot says, and you stole my voice. <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, he is kind of doing a Sam Elliott impression where he's doing the gravelly cowboy voice all throughout, which isn't always how Bradley Cooper sounds. Yeah. But it's also still kind of a Chris Christopherson thing from the 1976. Like, he's kind of channeling that, too. He's definitely got the beard like Chris Christopherson. I, yeah, I, I noticed that too, that he seemed to be drawn on that performance. And so in each of these four, uh, the character I'll just call Norman, because that's who he is in the first two. He is at the tail end of his prime, let's say. So he's like still a household name, still draws in the audiences, still kind of has the world at his fingertips. But it's pretty obvious pretty quickly that that's not going to last for too long. He's Brad Pitt from Babylon. That's right. Yeah. At the beginning of Babylon, I guess. He very much has the same trajectory. Yeah. Because we also learned very early that uh, Norman is a big time alcoholic and has been for a while. And it's been debilitating his career. In some of them, they play up that he's also a bit of a womanizer, like the 37 version. That's definitely kind of a main point. And the 54 has that one as kind of subtext at the beginning, too, although that's not really a major plot point as it goes along. But each of them has like a lot of focus on the systems that are kind of propping him up as the face. So like there's a PR agency and there's a like a, a manager and all this stuff that are like trying to keep him on track, but he's just getting drunk every single night and destroying stuff and causing a ruckus. Yeah. He's like a force of nature. He'll, he'll like smash through walls almost. 
And and in each one of them, there is like um, kind of a, a single night, like a, a moment where Norman and Esther cross paths and it kind of alters them, their their trajectories. And I think the 54 was my favorite version of this because Norman is supposed to appear on stage. Everyone clearly knows that it's a crapshoot whether he's actually going to be up for performing because like they're like, oh, is he going to be here tonight? Is he going to be ready? And it seems like he's not, but then he kind of storms in just like sloppy, drunk, like ready to embarrass himself on stage. And Judy Garland, who plays Esther, is just like a stage dancer in the show. And she manages to like turn him going on stage into this sort of like kind of jokey dance routine that ends up making him look funny and charming without embarrassing himself, which I kind of liked the way that they collided there. In the the 76 and in the 2018, what it is is he basically is on a bender out at night and he stops at a bar to get some shots and ends up seeing Esther performing. But in each of these, the point is kind of that Norman simultaneously finds himself attracted to Esther, but more than that, pegs her as like something different and something special. It's like a diamond in the rough that could really be something special too. And what did you think of these, this different, these encounters here, Brian? So I watched the fifties one first and I watched all the other ones after that. And that's probably going to color things because most things I thought worked pretty well in the fifties one. Yeah. I think this moment worked okay in all four cases. I think in the ones where it became more musical, it was interesting because he can, you know, hear her singing like, hear her before he sees her, necessarily. I think that can make for a good reveal. I think the 2018 one really nailed that, because there's this really cool shot where she's singing La Vie en Rose, and she, like, lies down and locks eyes with him as she's singing. And you kind of see from his perspective, and her eyes are, like, kind of lit up by this red light. And I thought... That one was right up there with the 1954 one for being like really cool as a way that they kind of cross paths where I kind of believed what we were supposed to. I thought the cinematography throughout the 2018 one was really, really good. Lots of cool lighting and like shallow depth of focus. Yeah, there is kind of a cliche that actors who become directors tend to overuse the close up because they think of themselves and they think of the acting as kind of the central thing of the film. And I thought that that actually was kind of true of the 2018. Like, I think it might have overused the close up. Um, but I actually think that it more or less works for the story because it's kind of an intimate story about like the different ways that they're playing off of each other. And I, I did think there was some really cool stuff with the cinematography. I thought it was a, an attractive film for sure. That said, in the 2018 version, he meets her performing in a drag bar. So I don't know. <laughs> it's like, can you take that at face value? I mean, do you know what you're going to get? But yeah, and also kind of goofy because there's a whole thing about, oh, well, I know she's not in drag, but they wanted her to perform anyways. So I didn't quite know why it was set at a drag bar, I guess just for the vibes. I'm not sure. And so in each one of them, kind of before long, Norman is encouraging Esther to bet on herself put her talent and individuality out there on display, like rather than being reserved about herself. 
And in each case, he also provides like a foot in the door. So like a way to get her noticed. So in the the first two, when it's an acting gig, he gets her a screen test and gets her cast in her first movie and in a small role. But in the rock star ones, he actually gets her to perform on stage. And I think the single most chills scene of the four versions is the 2018 when all of a sudden we're following her, like going to this concert because he's invited her to his big concert and like, oh, wait, it's going to be a backstage pass. And oh, wait, he's she's going to get a private. I think it's even a private flight there and just walks back there. And then you kind of see the whole huge audience and she's just kind of listening. And he like says, all right, that song that we sang the night before, we're going to go perform that right now. And like we kind of trace her as she walks right out on stage and sings like this. I mean, it's a song called Shallow, which was a number one Billboard hit. So um, it's probably something you've heard before. Right. It's the one they sang at the Oscars together, right? Yep. And I thought it was, uh, I don't know, I got the chills watching it. So I think it's like cool. You get the sense of her being immersed in this huge world and profile all of a sudden. Right. I liked how they did this on the 70s version, too, where, as you kind of said, it's like the first two versions have a lot in common and the second two have a lot in common. But in this moment in the Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand one, he's really messed up. I mean, he's he's like drunk and stumbling around and. And then he like jumps off the stage and he takes a guy's motorcycle and he's just tearing around on the stage in the motorcycle. And I think Barbara Streisand is like, stop messing around. You're going to kill yourself. And then um, then he's like, OK, yeah, now she's going to sing. So it's like very just you never know what he's going to do. Erratic. And, and now from not knowing she had to do anything, she's got to like take the reins. The 1976 one really played up this idea that Chris Christopherson could like destroy a building or like just be a wrecking ball on a moment's notice. You know, Um, I think that was that the one where he spray painted the wall, Esther. I guess it could be wrong. I guess it must have been. Or was that in 2018? Now I'm going to look that up. It all runs together. I know that's that's a problem is like. When it's this similar with slight variations, some of it also runs together. Like I was trying to remember, especially 54 and 37, which one, which thing happened in which. Okay, you were right. It was 76 had the spray paint. The 1954 one also has this idea that James Mason, who's got that wonderful accent. Last heard in Rich Little's Christmas Carol. When I said I didn't know who James Mason was and, and Dan gave me a lesson. Now, you know. He'll like fight anyone. That's the thing is like he's punching his PR handler guy a whole bunch. And like, yeah, he he'll come in like a wrecking ball, too. And so then now, like Esther has kind of sort of gotten her break. But in each case, it kind of takes a little bit of time. Everybody kind of views her skeptically at first as like the one who's kind of hanging on to the star. But because she gets her chance and like follows Norman's advice and like leans on her, what makes her individually special. Um, she ends up blowing the people in charge away. So she gets like a record deal in the 2018. And then in 1954, she gets a screen test where she gets like a starring role to 
be Judy Garland and sing with those incredible that incredible voice. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how her trajectory was in the 50s version, because at first, like, she's a bit part actor, an extra, basically, and only gradually do they start to let her sing. And then that's how she has her breakout is she lands like a big role in a musical. Which had me thinking of Babylon, too, and even singing in the rain. I, I was definitely thinking singing in the rain and other musicals around that period like American in Paris. One thing I liked about the 37 and the 54 versions, like I was saying, I think they're just a little more uh, sharp for their theme because of the way that the Hollywood studio system worked and like really cranked out a specific image of their stars. Both of those versions have some play around how each of the characters has constructed names, basically. So there it's Esther Blodgett. And there's like a lot of jokes about how that's kind of a stodgy name. And she becomes Vicky Lester, which is like a sexy name. And then eventually in both of them, we learned that Norman Maine was not his original name. That was one that was constructed for him. So it kind of builds these parallels between them, too. I, I really liked that reveal that you don't hear it until they get married and the like county clerk says the real name, which in the 54 version is Ernest Gubbins. <laughs> I like that one a lot. And also it calls to mind real life cases of that, like how I think Marilyn Monroe was Norma Jean Mortensen. I think Cary Grant has some crazy name, too. Not Cary Grant, Clark Gable. I always get them mixed up. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of entertainers who adopted names to, like, stand out more. Like, I always thought Bruno Mars was a great stage name. And his real name is Peter Gene Hernandez. I don't think he'd be quite so popular if he was Peter Gene Hernandez. Bruno Mars is better. Okay, I don't know if I settled on Clark Abel or Cary Grant, but it is Cary Grant who has the crazy birth name, which is Archibald Leach. <laughs> yeah. Archie Leach. I don't think that would have gone quite so far. It's funny how names matter, you know? It's like, um, this is a big thing in basketball, how the majority of the all-time great players have also had all-time great names. Michael Jordan, just a great sounding name. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, awesome name. And then people get hyped when someone comes into the league with a great name. And they're like, oh, wait, Shaquille O'Neal. Is he going to be great? Yes, he is. LeBron James, that's a great name. Is he going to be great? Yes, he is. And so every now and then someone will come in and people will get on the name hype. It doesn't even matter how it is as a player. It's like, you're locked in on that player because he has a great name, which I always find funny. Interesting. What would your pen name be, Dan? Have you ever picked out an author name for yourself or multiple author names? Um, yes, actually. That's a good question. I guess I can reveal it. There's no, it's not like it's going to be a secret or anything. So I decided if I ever self-published anything, particularly that was like fiction, and if I were to write fiction, it would probably be comedy and more likely than not teen comedy. I like it when your pen name connects back to your actual name. And I would probably 
do something where my adopted first name reminds me of my actual last name and my adopted last name reminds me of my actual first name. So I know it's not a real first name, but like this name came to me in a flash and I was like, okay, I could see that on a cover of a book. And that name is Stack McDaniels. That would be my pen name. Okay. Stack McDaniels. It's a name that can cut glass. A name that can cut glass. Is that from something? Yeah, it is. Dirk Dickler. Oh, good. What would your yours be? I guess Count Gauntley, right? Well, it would depend on the genre of story, but I think Jack Colby, if I wrote like Tom Clancy books. Jack Colby. Okay, that I can see that on a Tom Clancy novel. A, a little bit more broadly, I think something with the last name Sumner is a good writer name. I think Scott Sumner would work too. So I've joked with my wife that we should have given our uh, kids the middle initials RR because that means they'd be a great fantasy author because you have J.R.R. Tolkien and George R.R. Martin. Just get the RR in there and you're a fantasy author. Yeah, Jolkian, Rolkian, Rolkian, Tolkien. <laughs> My brother adopted the name W.W. Stalkup as his fantasy pen name, which I think is pretty good. Although the problem with W.W. is it starts to sound like a web address. www.wwstalkup.com is his, his website. So anyways, here we are with Norman and Esther, and Esther has gotten her chance and... She's starting to get some traction. Norman is also finding his batteries recharged being around Esther and they kind of fall more in love. And he cuts back on his drinking and drugging and decides he wants to get his life back on track with Esther by his side. And Esther like blindly and idealistically believes in him and supports him, you know, maybe not blindly, but like in a way that inspires Norman. And Esther's stars rises and rises and rises, but Norman's history of causing trouble catches up with him. So even though he's trying to make right, things are starting to slip away from him. Yeah, it's kind of like the damage has already been done. Right. So even though he's trying to, to get it right, it's like, oh, we're cutting you out of the studio gig. Oh, we're we're not going to let you go on tour or whatever it is, you know. So nonetheless... As they fall deeper in love, one thing that all four have in common is there's a kind of impromptu decision to get married and always a small private wedding that's at odds with like their collective big image, you know, the the rising star and then like the legacy legendary actor getting married together kind of played for juxtaposition about who, who they are. And I guess to kind of highlight that their love is authentic, you know, nonetheless, it's always right around this time that Norman really starts to feel torn by his own fading star and the jealousy that he feels with Esther. And they usually have like a fight at some point and some like combination of humiliating things where, uh, you know, it kind of clicks into Norman's brain that Esther has eclipsed him. Like in the first two, it's that, you know, they're getting phone calls and he's, he says, no, I'm, I'm Esther's husband. And they're like, okay, well, Mr. Lester, because her last name is Lester, but obviously he, they're not recognizing that he's his own standalone star. 
And then in each of the four, the the big turning point happens at an award show. So the award show is like the official coming out party for Esther as a superstar. So it's the Oscars for the movie ones and the Grammys for the music ones. And in each one of them, out comes Norman stumbling, shit-faced drunk, and embarrasses her on stage in different ways, but always like grabbing the mic and saying something humiliating, usually about how he's washed up and he realizes it. And in like three of the four, he starts waggling his arms around and accidentally slaps her in the face. And I was thinking, you just can't stagger out onto the Oscar stage uninvited and slap somebody in the face. (laughs) Hmm. That's right. It's like foreshadowing for what would happen last year. Keep your wife's name out your motherfucking mouth or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And in the 2018 one, he pisses his pants. I thought that was foreshadowed well, because like when he gets to the seat, he's like, I was trying to use the bathroom, but they told me I need to be here. (laughs) I feel like if someone says they have to use the bathroom, never tell them no. Although I guess the concern is that they're just going to go in and do drugs in that scenario. Right. I think that's what they run into these days with like Starbucks and things. But yeah, that's always been my policy. It's like it's better to go to the bathroom in there than to do it out here. Maybe even better to do drugs in there than to do it out here, frankly. One thing I read was that, you know, we've got these fictional award ceremonies within the movies. Well, I laughed in the 1937 version because it's the eighth Oscars. They're still in single digits. But in the real life award ceremonies those years, like every version of the four got nominated for at least four Oscars. Oh, interesting. And several got Grammy nominations for their soundtracks. But the only person who won the award depicted in the movie is Barbara Streisand. Because she got both an Oscar and a Grammy associated with the film. Oh. Lady Gaga did win the Oscar for Best Song. Okay. Gotcha. And... I think Streisand didn't win Best Actress. I think she also won Best Song. I think that's right. But then she won the Grammy, too, that she was shown winning. Is that right? Yeah. Gotcha. But like I said, this is kind of a turning point. And in each one of them, Esther kind of has to face facts that basically it's complicated having a raging alcoholic in your life. And like, does she quote unquote need him anymore? I mean... He got her foot in the door, but, you know, now he's kind of dragging her down. And in each case, basically, the Esther character, like, makes some commitment that he's going to that she's going to be there for him. And in the 37 and 54, she basically bails him out of drunk jail. And in each one, Norman decides that he's going to go to rehab or it's maybe decided for him that he's going to go to rehab. And so... Now we have Esther like there to support him at rehab. And like it's it's really like embarrassing for Norman. It's this interesting dynamic because Norman is trying to be strong, but he's also kind of realized that he's let his career slip away. And so like the only thing he has to hold on to now is her. 
but it's like also against his nature because he also doesn't like being so constrained and being in this like dehumanizing situation right and especially in the early versions there's really a gendered aspect to it like it's really ignominious for the wife to be the breadwinner i mentioned that the 50s version had me thinking of other 50s musicals like singing in the rain but also some of the set design there's like some big fantasy sequences and those made me think of the 5000 fingers of dr t and actually, when he goes to the sanitarium, his guard who's constantly watching him at the sanitarium is the same guard who sits outside the cell in 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, who they, like, steal his hearing aid and they smush it up to make the, the gadget at the end that sucks the sound out of the air. It all comes together on the goods of film podcasts. You got Dr. Seuss and Lady Gaga... All tied up together. It's a continuum, a spectrum, if you will. Inevitably, in this, what happens is Norman gets out of rehab and like the instant he gets out of rehab, an industry person who has some history with Norman comes up to him and is like, yeah, dude, what are you doing? You're you, man, you messed up so bad. And now you have to rely on your wife and you're bringing her down and it always sends him on an epic bender and uh, he kind of disappears for a while. I feel like he could have settled into the role of like being her manager or something, or I, maybe that's too much responsibility considering he's a loose cannon, but I don't know, just cashing the checks that she brings in. It's like, she likes him. He likes her. They got the nice house. Just stabilize for a little while. Yeah. And like, honestly, I don't drink anymore, but drinking at home, it was my favorite thing to do. If I were him, I would just drink at home and just chill, just listen to my records and read my books and cash the paychecks and cheer on my wife. I guess you can't if you've like had a taste of the success and that's kind of part of your DNA. I guess that's the point. But like, yeah, I agree. I feel like were he a more mature man, this could have been like the ultimate gig, you know? Right. And if he's not starring in movies anymore, he could go to like conventions or something. Right. There's something he could do. Go on, you know, small time, like make TV cameos, something. But I think that I really do think that that's the point is like he can't really accept that it's over. And that is like brought to its ultimate level in Babylon, which we talked about with Brad Pitt's character when he recognizes it. He goes and shoots himself. That's where Although we're I guess that's basically what happens here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because in each one of them, Esther basically decides to sacrifice some part of her career, um, whether it's like canceling a performance to be by his side or like calling off her career to go fly away with him so that they're not in the spotlight anymore. And in each case, basically he gets wind of it and gets devastated by it. And decides that he's going to kill himself because he's he doesn't have bring any more value to this world the way that he sees it even though in Esther's eyes he does because that he's her true love they're married so the ways that he dies in the first two he kind of swims out they in each one of them there's like a bit where they kind of have a fancy house together and we see them in their their new home and there's some line about how you made it a home by being there and in the first two, the home is on the beach and he kind of wades out into the water and 
then just drowns, I guess. I think it would be hard to kill yourself walking into the ocean. I don't, I don't know. I think that would be difficult. Maybe past a certain point, you don't control it anymore and the, the current takes you out. But that's what Odysseus's mom did in the Odyssey also. Yeah, I've seen it in a couple of movies too, yeah. I think it's like a poetic image is a big reason why, but I agree from a practical perspective. That would be hard. And I feel like drowning would not be the way to go. No, unpleasant, drawn out. And then in, in the 76 one, he gets really, really drunk and he goes off driving in a Ferrari like 150 miles an hour and his car flips over. I think that's the one where you could say the intentionality is at least a little bit fuzzy. Like he probably had resigned away his life at that point, but was he actually trying to die at that moment? Debatable. I don't know. Have you read or watched Looking for Alaska? It's one of the John Greens we haven't talked about. No, I haven't. Basically, the crux of the second half of that book comes down to the question about whether, like how intentional a death was, basically. And I was thinking a lot of that here. I don't want to say more in case we end up discussing it at some point. But And then in the 2018 one, he hangs himself. Not before cooking a big steak for the dog that the pair of them adopted. I like the dog. I wish we had more of the dog. That was a pretty good dog. It was like some kind of doodle or something with the curly hair. I noticed in especially the Chris Christopherson one, but also in the Lady Gaga one, that there were like little hints that he was going to kill himself at the end. I guess in the Lady Gaga one, it was pretty on the nose because he says, I once tried to kill myself. Yeah, that's right. He admits it. Yeah. Oh, one thing that we haven't said that I was glad got preserved in all four of them. I feel like now you can't not do it is you need to have exactly two instances of the line, I just wanted to get a look at you, or a variation on that, that the man says to the woman, and it has to be the last thing that the man says to the woman before he kills himself. And I thought the Lady Gaga one did the best, the Bradley Cooper's was the best, because she did this like line on her nose, because one of their discussion points early on was whether she is traditionally beautiful, because she kind of had a weird-looking nose. That's something that we haven't mentioned yet, but kind of a key point in all four of these, actually, is that the woman has an unusual look. Very true. Very important point. All of them have kind of distinct looks. The 1937 one felt the most like just another Hollywood person to me. Like, I don't really know what a normal 30s Hollywood person looked like, but the rest of them have just very distinct and unique looks. Right. And it's hard talking about women's fashion in the 30s i find also because there was like a window in time when the betty boop look was very popular and i don't quite get it it's like the very short hair and uh, yeah betty boop uh, clara bow disney snow white also 1937 like she looks totally different from the other princesses yeah i think snow white is a great movie but i think she's like a boring character design except for her dress her dress is like iconic but can you even in your head recall exactly what her face looks like? I don't know. I think it's just kind of like a, a nothing sort of character design. <laughs> well, I went back and watched that one not too long ago and was struck how much of it is rotoscoped. And I don't know, rotoscoping to me, we talked about it a lot in our Lord of the Rings episode, but it, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Interesting, yeah. That movie has like an absolutely incredible last 20 minutes, but... 
like two thirds of the movie is just them cooking dinner and washing stuff for the night. Doesn't have that much narrative momentum in it. But I like all the music numbers from the dwarves, though. Like in the mine, I really like their their little party that they throw where they just each play an instrument. Grumpy has the best instrument. He has that cuckoo clock organ. That validates the whole movie for me. Grumpy, like, you know, he's more than just the grumpy one. He's, well, one, he's like the first mate of the dwarves. It's clear that he's the second in command. He's the one who's like conferring with Doc. Like he's next in succession. Grumpy's got a lot going on. Brian, rank the dwarves. Favorite to least favorite. Oh, man. This is a loaded question. Definitely grumpy number one. Easy. Yeah. I'm going to say dopey. Dopey gets singled out quite a bit. Yeah, probably dopey number two. Yeah. I like Doc because he has a clear job. Sneezy is a good gag. So I don't know if he's like himself the most distinct, but the gag of somebody trying to sneeze and holding it back is always entertaining. I find Bashful to be a frustrating character. I don't know. Like, if I have to enhance my emotions, act like I have strong feelings about all the dwarves, I, I suppose my, my most negative would be directed towards Bashful. But really, realistically, uh, less strong feelings towards dwarves beyond Grumpy. Happy is the least remarkable, I would say. Yeah, he's middle of the road. I got nothing against Happy. I think he's he's very average. Sleepy's a good gag, too. Like, falling asleep, narcolepsy, hilarious. Yeah, I like the way Sleepy plays his flute because he's, you know, he's half-assing it. He's falling asleep while he's playing it. Anyways, back to A Star is Born here. So yeah, now Norman is dead and in each of them we kind of follow up Esther being totally devastated. Although I think it's interesting that like the cadence at which we see them. So the 2018 one, I think we see her most immediately right after the death. But in the other ones, it kind of slow plays the reveal of Esther. And I think it does a good job of kind of building up, having us imagine just how devastated she is. You could have gone the other route and like seen her like screaming and breaking down. But I kind of found it effective that we just imagine that she's crumpled inside now that her her shining light has, has passed away. And in each of them, also the Esther character, she she's like thinking about quitting but she decides to persist in some way and like makes some dramatic declaration that she is eternally connected to Norman. So in the 1937 and 1954, she announces her name because remember there's been lots of name play throughout, like using that as a little motif. She announces her name is Mrs. Norman Maine. It's like her declaring that he will always be a part of her, etc. which it's a nice moment. It is a little dated with the gender stuff. Like people don't really say Mrs. quote man's name as much as they used to. I thought it was noteworthy in the music ones, at least the two more recent ones that after the Norman character dies, suddenly his music is selling well. There's like a little mention that, oh, he's doing numbers. But that's that's true. That's so true, though. It happens like if you ever look at like the records for like most singles on the chart or most albums in the top 10, a lot of them are like Prince when he died or something like that. Not necessarily washed up to the same extent that he was, but like someone who was maybe a little faded from the public consciousness, but was previously beloved. And then all of a sudden 
he dies and everybody's like, oh, yeah, it gets a lot of nostalgia for when that person was big, you know? Yeah. What, what does Purple Rain mean, Dan? I haven't seen Purple Rain. I think a lot of Prince's stuff is nonsense, so I have never tried to parse that one out. Is it a metaphor for something? Okay. Is this the same same thing with When Doves Cry? <laughs> Maybe. That one is at least an image that like has emotional resonance. Purple Rain just sounds like I don't want to be out in that rain to me. It's like I don't that's not really a thing. <laughs> and that's how the the stars are born end. So thus far been saying some I guess th- individual things I like in different ones, but I'll just go out and say I thought the 76 one overall was just kind of chintzy compared to the others. And like some of it's just the scuzzy 70s vibe, I guess. Early cocaine era vibe. But the screenplay just didn't emotionally connect quite as much with me. I did like Christofferson quite a bit. I liked him more than I expected to. And at first I liked Streisand's performance, but as it kind of dragged on and it became clear the movie was just about getting her more and more musical performances and her acting chops weren't quite up to that. I don't know. I was less invested in that one as that one went along. Did you have a, a, a clear least favorite of the four? I would also single out that one. I can't take credit for this, but on Wikipedia, I read a blurb. Somebody titled their review, A Star is Boring. It's boring. Boring? Yeah. And in that case, I mean, that was the third one I watched. They're all pretty long. Like, especially the 50s one is like a full three hours, but all of them are more than two hours. And with the Barbra Streisand one, I kept clicking the bar to see how much of the movie was left. And it kept being so much. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, there 45 minutes left, 33 minutes left. It's like, come on. And then the, the final scene of the film is like when she's doing her tribute performance to, to Norman. And it's like a single eight minute shot where she's singing. Brutal, just drags on and on. Yeah, that's one thing I kind of said they do a public declaration, but in the the latter two, the rock star ones, 76 and 18, the the form that that takes is like a performance of some sort of song that linked them together, basically. And I think I don't really have much to say about Janet Gaynor, the star of the 37 one. I mean, I thought she was good, but I think each of the subsequent three, at a minimum, the person they picked is like an otherworldly talent, like really just a special, at least from like a, a singing perspective, talent. And I think Judy Garland's performance was so good. I was kept being blown away about how it reminded me of how if you ever watch Wizard of Oz, like it, she's 16 in it and she just carries the damn movie. It's like so much. Any 16-year-old would just think about like a random Disney Channel original movie star trying to star in goddamn Wizard of Oz. And, you know, no one could do what Judy Garland does. And then she kind of carries this this movie the same way. It does a little bit of the let's throw in a song here just for the sake of having Judy Garland sing something. But it makes a little more sense to me than the Barbra Streisand one. It like fits in a little bit more. And she's just so good at the acting, at the singing, at the emoting at the, the emotional breakdowns, at the delivering the quips. I thought it was a, a tremendous performance by her. Yeah, I felt the same. 
with Judy Garland, it's like there's no limit to the power she can sing with. She can always add on a little more. Always amp it up a little more. Right. With such emotional intensity, too. Also, I could notice in this film, like, similarities to her uh, her daughter from Arrested Development. What's your name? Oh, oh, that's funny you say that, because I kept... Man, I kept thinking, um, what, yeah, what's her name? Um, Liza, Liza Minnelli? Liza Minnelli. There it is. From Cabaret. Yeah. Man, the funny thing is I kept thinking about Liza Minnelli and I forgot th- that she was Judy Garland's daughter. Uh, Lucille, too, as she is. In, <laughs> That's right. In that. I thought it was really interesting in the 2018 version how as the story goes along and the woman character Allie gets more and more successful. Her managers are shoehorning her into being a pop star. They're like, okay, now you need to have backup dancers. Now you need to have the synchronized dancing. You can't just stand there and sing. And they're kind of turning her into Lady Gaga. And that's painted in a negative light. Like this is fake. This is inauthentic. And I just found that really interesting. Because one would think that the reason that Lady Gaga does the thing she does is that she really, like, believes in them. And that's, like, her artistic voice. Well, I think the way that I read it was that was pushing back against people who say it's inauthentic. Because to her point, it's like, I'm still, like, the one in charge creatively. And, like, just because this image seems a little sugary, it's still me. I mean, it definitely does have a little bit of bite on it in terms of like making it look a little more shallow to unintentionally use that word there. But yeah, I think I think each of the performances by Garland, Streisand and Gaga, either intentionally or unintentionally, really say things about the performer too, like the way that the character is depicted, not just the fact that it's like them doing it, but like the way that the character is kind of written in it. Um, I think Judy Garland is interesting because, I mean, at this point in her career, she died like 10 years later. And I think she was going through some of the Norman Maine problem at this point in her life. Like she, I don't really know all about her life, but I think she had substance abuse problems dating back to at least Wizard of Oz. And that was kind of dragging her down. And like, I don't know, I kind of detected a current of that, like her just kind of putting herself all out there because... You know, she wants to remain kind of show the world that she really still is a big star like this in some ways. Oh, I read something to that effect, too, that she was off screen creating the Norman Maine problems. She was kind of a liability, quote unquote, difficult. Interesting. Which of the the four had the music that you enjoyed the most? I mean, I guess really it only applies to the last three. The first one maybe has one music number, if even. Yeah. It's a little hard to say. I guess I would go with the Lady Gaga one. I didn't really find that there's any that's stuck in my head the way that, like, a really show-stopping musical number tends to do. But probably I'll go with 2018. What about you? I think the 2018 has, like, the, the songs that most resemble pop songs. I mean, Shallow topped the charts, and... I think it's a good song. I think it's a terrific scene, but a, just a good song, I would say. But I would say that's probably like the soundtrack I would listen to most on my own. 
1954 one has like those show tunes. It's like a totally different style because it's not just about like a, a tune you would hit play on your car radio because it's got like a whole performance element to it, you know? So it's a little different. Something that was awesome in the 50s one was so you could see the music numbers get staged in the movies and they had great costumes. Like there's this one scene that takes place on a riverboat or something like Old South. Uh, but everybody's got these red outfits on to work with the Technicolor. And it's like all different shades of red. And they've got red bowler hats and red vests and red ties. And everybody's a slightly different red. And then it shows close-ups on them. And they have like old school facial hair. So like little mustaches and Van Dyke beards and sideburns. And they're dyed red. The hair, even their eyebrows, it's like pink or auburn or burgundy. Wow. Really great production values. Particularly in the 50s one, I would say for sure. And there's, it does the one thing that I think of as the Broadway medley problem, or I don't know if you want to call it a problem, uh, question in Singing in the Rain, where it like all of a sudden just breaks out into an extended multi-part song. And in the 50s one, this is like right as she's made it and gets her first starring gig. We see her do like a, I felt like at least 10 minutes, like multi-part song thing. Then it goes into intermission. Suddenly reality dissolves. Yeah. The walls are melting. Speaking of which, the 50s had a couple of weird production things watching it now. So it does have an intermission. It's the only one. And I was trying to think, did we see any others that had an intermission? Did the Great Race have one? I think the Great Race does. Yeah. Okay. And was there another? Oh, the greatest show on earth. I don't think that one did. I can't remember. But that was definitely the era when you would get them. Like, yeah. I know Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and the 1967 Dr. Doolittle and Fiddler on the Roof. Anything that's like taking a three hour stage musical and adapting it over to a movie around this time tended to do it. I think there's you'll occasionally see on film Twitter a movement bring back the intermission, especially when you get so so many movies that are like two hours and 25 minutes long. To me, I call it. 145 minutes, two hours and 25 minutes long. That's the devil's runtime. Because to me, if you're that long, then you're not necessarily intentionally going for being like a quote unquote long movie. But you're also not a short movie. So you're probably just like a poorly edited over long slog. But like once you get up to three hours at that point, it's like a decision to be a long movie. It's like, you know, the movie is designed to be a long movie. And so I kind of cut it a little more slack because I can tell it's being epic in length. But two hours and 25 minutes, uh-uh. That's a, that's a red flag for me. And I think that's about what the 1976 version of A Star is Born is. Yeah, I think so. And the really long one, the 50s version, I guess early on they like realized that that was potentially a hang-up for some people and maybe even some exhibitors. And so they hacked it down by a half an hour. But then... In the 80s, they like tried to restore it. And it was a case where like maybe they had some of the audio, but they didn't have a lot of the film artifacts left anymore. So they like stitched it together with production stills, which was unusual. Yeah, there's like a 15 minute stretch basically from when they meet before she kind of gets her first break that they just completely cut out. And then when you see it now you just see 
black and white stills cutting between them like a few seconds at a time. It definitely brought me out of the moment, but it's like early enough in the film that I kind of forgot about it by the end. I was glad there wasn't too much of that because it definitely distracted me. But I guess that's what you got to do. Better to have it than to completely cut out the story. I I think it's probably better. Yeah, I thought it was an important, you know, somewhat important part. Like it would have been lesser if it was not there. Yeah, it adds some dynamic to the characters. I've occasionally seen that on like, what are the lost films that you most wish could be recovered? And the missing footage from A Star is Born is occasionally on that list. Because I think they did it when George Cukor was like out of the country. It's always something like that. It was that with the great Ambersons too, or Magnificent Ambersons for Orson Welles. Speaking of great names, Orson Welles, that's a great name. Is that his real name or is that adopted? That's a good question. George Orson Welles. So Orson was his middle name. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of like how each of them bring out things about their era. 30s, you kind of got the Great Depression feeding into it, the dawn of Technicolor, the peak of the studio system. The 50s, you kind of have the tail end of that, kind of the peak gaudiness of the studio system. The 70s, you have the rock star era. And then in the 2018, it definitely plays on like the dwindling of rock icons and the rise of pop icons, to your point. It's like the fact that he's a classic rock singer means he's always singing his oldies. That's what people want to hear, his oldies. And then when Lady Gaga turns into a pop star, it's like what you got to do to be a star at the time. So it's kind of playing into that, too, just like how nowadays there really aren't rock stars anymore. There's just pop stars, you know, which is kind of a 2000s, 2010s, 2020s phenomenon. I haven't talked much about the 37 one. One thing I like that it did is it had some cool meta elements. Like it kind of opened by showing a screenplay like of what was happening. And then it ended the same way, kind of like layering in on itself that it's a movie about a movie because life of being a movie star is kind of like being in a movie. I really liked that as well. And even before it shows the script page, like it starts on the Paramount logo or not Paramount Warner Brothers, like the Warner Brothers Animaniacs water tower. And then the camera tilts down and you see that you're on the studio lot. So like it's it's not just a title card. It's like we are here at the studio. So extremely meta. I also thought the 30s version was very introspective, like surprisingly introspective so early on. Like Hollywood chews people up and spits them out. We've only been here for, you know, 15 years. And yet we know (laughs) that this is soul crushing. But this was also after the Hays Code. And I thought it was kind of blunt about womanizing and alcoholism for the Hays Code. That's a good point. I was like Googling, is this pre-code? But no, I think that I'm pretty sure the Hayes Code was 34. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, I think the 54 one also has some meta elements where like the breakdown between are we watching this person just be a person who is playing the character of an actor or are we actually like watching them put on a show for our own benefit? You know, it's like it removed that one layer of being a character within a movie, you know? It's kind of like what High School Musical 3 did, except not quite so goofy about it. 
And same thing with the 76, where it occasionally feels like a rock documentary. We haven't really watched any rock documentaries here, but that's like a whole subgenre that exists out there that we got really big in the 70s and 80s, 90s. But yeah, I don't know. Kind of a cool phenomenon. What do you think if there was a 2023 A Star is Born? And would TikTok be involved? <laughs> Obviously, you can't do it just five years later. You have to wait. At least 20 years. So what yeah. are the gaps between them? Yeah, that's, I wanted to talk about that. The 2018 was by far the longest gap since there'd been one at 42 years. Before that, it had only been 22 years. And before that, it had only been 17 years. Like we think of the cycle of remakes getting shorter and shorter. And maybe at this point it will be. Maybe it won't be another 40 years before they do this again, but... Who can say? I feel like internet culture would be a big part of uh, 2020's A Star is Born. And it kind of comes up a little, like, on the fringes of the 2018 one. But I thought that was a little bit downplayed. Right. He's like, I saw you on YouTube. Look how many views this has. There was a little bit of that. What's an algorithm? Wait, is that the one that made that joke? What's an algorithm? I think it's the noise a drum makes. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> All right. Any other observations, praises, denigrations? Well, one more thing about algorithms first is <laughs> I watched somebody play through the campaign mode on Rock Band once, the video game, and they, they made their custom band all Nobel Prize winners named Albert. So it was Al Gore and Alfred Nobel and Albert Schweitzer and Albert Einstein. And they released it. I don't know. Somebody made the joke. Al Gore rhythms would be like the album they would put out. <laughs> That's good. Speaking of Nobel Prize winning scientists, I watched Oppenheimer and I thought it was hilarious how that movie treated scientists like superheroes. They were like, it would do the kind of what the MCU does for their superheroes in post-credit sequences where they'd be like, oh my God, it's insert superhero. And then they'd walk on screen or maybe they wouldn't like say something, but. Yeah, it's like that they turn around. Yeah. <gasps> wow. And it did that too with all of the, the famous scientists in Oppenheimer, of course, with Albert Einstein being like the the wise scientist king, the the one above them all. But I enjoyed that movie. I thought it was pretty good overall. I do think the last hour dragged on, but yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a little too long and pretty run-of-the-mill biopic in some ways. I liked the way that it depicted thought. Mmm, interesting. Well, like all the neat little space wavy effects and, you know, or, or representations of what's going on in an atom. And... The way, like, he would picture himself in different situations, like a pilot tells a story about being in a plane and seeing a missile go by, and then suddenly, like, Oppenheimer is imagining himself inside the plane. And what if it wasn't just one missile? What if it was a thousand missiles? Yeah, and you see the world blow up. Although I wish it had gone even more subjective. I felt like it didn't do it enough. Chris Nolan is too much of a clockwork guy. He likes the things to fit together nicely. But there was some fun, fun subjectivity and hallucinations. The best one by far was 
after they have Trinity, and then I think it's after they drop the bombs, they have the like rally, and then the rally turns into like apocalypse with like people vomiting and him imagining their skin burning off and stuff. That was an, a great scene. Yep, chilling scene. Anyways, we're, we're getting off track here, but anything you wanted to throw on before we go ahead and rate the gauntlet? I think I'm ready. Okay. So is it good? Is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good an eight out of eight. So I guess Brian will go 1937, 54, 76, 2018. And for each one, we'll have you rate, then I'll rate. So Brian, is the 1937 version of A Star is Born good? I like this one. I tend to favor movies that come first because obviously they got to do all the legwork. They got to establish what this thing is. But it was like genuinely insightful and thoughtful about its industry in a way that I was surprised at so early on. I'm going to give this one a five out of eight. I I would recommend it. What about you, Dan? My remarks are the same as yours. My rating is higher than yours. I think this is a very good movie. I We didn't talk much about it when I was going through it because like you said, it's just kind of the template and the other ones built on it in different ways, but it's fairly short. I think it's less than two hours and it moves quickly and the performances are both good, even though I didn't know those actors and just very sharp and kind of nails the feeling. And in addition with the 54 one really feels insightful about, yeah, how the, how the machinery works and like how powerful it is and how that can be good, but how it also can be destructive in different ways and just a very poignant film. I'm, I'm going to have this one edge into six territory. Very good. So that brings us to 1954, Brian, the Judy Garland vehicle with James Mason directed by George Cukor is the 1954 a star is born. Good. Okay. So I watched the 1954 one first, as I said, which might color my perception. This ended up being my favorite. I really liked the big production values I thought the decision to make it a musical to highlight Judy Garland's talents worked well. I'm going to give this one a six out of eight. Very good. I thought the both of the key performances were good. I like to see James Mason and finally know who he is. He definitely struck me as like unhinged the way that he was like Hulk smashing his his helpers. And... Yeah, I mean, this this is a memorable one. I, I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, Mason just had the quote-unquote misfortune of starring across Judy Garland in a really a special performance by her. I Again, my, my remarks are pretty similar to yours. I think this is, like, objectively the best one. Like, I think everything about it is great. The characters are, are really well-defined. I think the refinements it made in the plot are good. It's... A bit on the long side, like I feel like it got a little bloated and I probably would have preferred it if it had maybe cut out some of the musical numbers. Then again, Garland is so good and it's just really poignant to how it kind of interconnects with Judy Garland's life. And the Cinerama is kind of interesting. I'm not sure it was like 
essential, but it was kind of interesting, like the really big widescreen. I have this right on the edge of a six and a seven, and I'm going to land on exceptionally good. I'm going to go ahead and give this a seven, the 54 one, because it's it's just a kind of tremendous capstone piece of melodrama and entertainment and pulling it all together and just terrific production values while still having a really poignant story and like an all timer performance with Judy Garland. So I really love this one. It's so long. I'm not sure I'm going to like rush out to go see it again. But if I was going to like show someone this is what A Star is Born is all about, I think 54 is the one I would start with. 1976 version starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, Brian. One thing that we didn't really talk about is the first three movies have this like agent character who is always trying to get gigs for Norman. And then towards the end, they have a falling out, particularly in the first two versions. And he's more downplayed in the third version from the 70s. But what stuck out to me was that in the 1976 version, the agent was played by the guy who plays young Santa Claus in Ernest Saves Christmas in the 80s. So I wanted to shout him out. But that was like the happiest I was watching this movie, was noticing him. Uh, this it is kind of a slog in some ways. That's a little overly harsh. I mean, it's the same story, and it could just be that by the third time I was getting tired of it. But it did feel like it dragged. Like, I thought we could have accelerated a little bit. Maybe maybe that lies in making the musical numbers a little shorter. Because it really does feel like kind of a concert documentary. And I was just kind of tapping my watch, waiting to get to the next, the next beat in the story that by this point was familiar to me. I'm going to give this one a four out of eight. Because I did like... You know, the the ingenuity of making it rock-themed and giving it that new aesthetic, I thought it was a, a good creative choice to give it something new. Even if it didn't work in every regard for me. What about you, Dan? I was pretty solidly in four territory for most of the movie. It was like, uh, it's kind of just feels like a cheaper knockoff version but with its own twist, which is admittedly clever. And I think like anthropologically, it's a compelling film because it is very 70s in so many ways. The styles, the filmmaking craft, the look of the film itself, the music, of course, and this kind of this notion of like the coked out rock star all felt peak 70s. Actually, I might have even put it like early 80s for some of it. Um, but obviously, 76 is when it came out. Yeah, like Chris Christopherson's manager or somebody has a little ring for him with a, a compartment in it that he does cocaine out of the ring. I thought that felt like very 80s. And then just as the movie went on, I kind of got more annoyed with Barbara Streisand. I just felt like she wasn't adding quite so much except this godly voice that she has. And then I don't know, I just like didn't like either of the characters very much which you kind of have to strike a balance between watching them be destructive, but also like wanting to cheer for them. And I felt like this one swung too far the opposite direction. I did end up liking Christofferson more or less. Um, at least it made me like interested to see what he would be like in another role uh, too. That's, that's not just this because I liked his presence, but because I don't think I've seen him in anything else. And then 
I was at a low four and then spoilers for 2018. But when I came back around on 2018, I was like, man, I just care about these characters immediately so much more. And it made me even more cynical on 1976. So it was at a low four when I finished it. And then by the time I watched 2018, it made me even more cynical towards it. So I'm going to end at high three on this one. That is not not good. So not aggressively bad, very compelling, but like I wouldn't even quite call it goodish. I don't know. It's like it's only interesting to me because it's another one of these, but not one that I would ever want to watch like on its own, I guess. True. Moving on to 2018, Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga. Brian, is 2018's A Star is Born good? This is another one where I liked the production values. I thought the cinematography was quite good. And as you said, maybe it is overemphasizing the actor's faces because it's directed by an actor. But I thought that worked for a story where it's so much about the two of them. And I really bought the chemistry here. You know, this is the one that they played at the Oscars and everybody was like, oh, they might like each other for real. And I don't know if that was ever determined, but. I definitely remember there being headlines to that effect, speculating if they had a real relationship. That's how you know it's good chemistry when that that's being bandied about. I mean, maybe that's just good marketing, you know, but I agree. Anyways, go on. But um, this was a more profane movie. They were just saying fucking this and fucking that. Every sentence, it seemed like, like anytime there was a noun, it was fucking... And I didn't think that was warranted. <laughs> that sets it back a little bit for me. We'd watched three versions where it didn't have that, and it, it worked okay. And uh, I don't know. I guess you got to be of the times. I'm ultimately going to give this one a five. I didn't like it as much as the Judy Garland version. But yeah, I mean, good chemistry, good music. They're trotting out the story again for the first time in a while. And I thought they did it justice. I mean, I liked this cast. Those are my thoughts. Where are you at? Good call on the cast, by the way. Dave Chappelle showing up there. He's like a retired musician, kind of showing what his life could be and what you were basically talking about. Like if you decide to just kind of ride the wave out and and, uh, fade away rather than burning out. Anthony Ramos playing... Lady Gaga's friend early on. He's the guy from Hamilton. Oh, we didn't even mention the friend who like tags around and is by your side all the time. The third wheel. Oh, yeah. They all have those. Yeah. In the very first one, it's Andy Devine, character actor with the crazy voice who was Friar Tuck in the Disney Robin Hood. Nice. So. I'm like right on the fence of a five and a six. I think their chemistry is absolutely phenomenal. I I enjoy the music bits. I really like the first like 45 minutes of this when he discovers her and you can really feel the sparks. And then they like sit in a parking lot and strum out a song together. And then he's like whisking her onto stage and like basically up through that. This is like really high up there for me because I was just vibing with it so much. And I guess it maybe it's just the nature of like, the rise is more fun than the fall, but I felt like the second half just isn't quite as electric. It still has got a lot of good moments. And I really like Sam Elliott as the brother. And I think Cooper and Gaga are both really good in this too. I guess you just call her Gaga. If it's her last name, like lady Gaga. I don't know. Is that, it's a Gaga comma lady. I'm not sure. (laughs) There's your title. 
Gaga, comma, lady. And in her case, of course, she's one who got the, the stage name going on because her real name is like Stephanie Germanata or something. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, maybe I'm being too generous, but I'm just going to like have this in the nick of a six of a very good because I really, I don't know. After watching the 76 one, this one was just a relief that it was like emotionally resonant and not that the, it was horrible, the 76 one, but this one just felt more like the vision was was there for me. So I don't know. I, I like it. I like Lady Gaga. I think she's like a generational talent. I think she brings a lot of it here. I don't think it's quite as good as Judy Carlin, but I think it's a great performance and also a fairly smart film, not quite as like meta striking as the first two in the studio system commentary. And yeah, you know what? Let's make it a good. We'll call it a good. It's a five. I'm right on the fence there. I recommend it at least. So that's a star is born. I had the Hercules song stuck in my head all week. Going to shout it from the mountaintops. A star is born. Something, something pulling out the stops. A star is born. Uh, That's one where I can't understand all the words because there's like a lot going on and the credits are starting to roll. Yeah, that's Phil's boy. Gets me every time. All right, Brian, we're dragging on here. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what is the next entry in Movies About Making Movies Month going to be now that we've had, boy, let's see if I can remember it all. We had a sci-fi blockbuster in Super 8. We had uh, old school comedy with, what was that one called? Sullivan's Travels. We had a fan-made film in last week's Greatest of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, and now we had the big melodrama in A Star is Born. What is on the agenda next for us? Okay, so yet again, it's going to be not just one movie, but two. Merciful compared to four, but as I said, I thought this was good. We got all pretty positive reviews, except maybe 1976. But what I am queuing up next is a movie from an Italian director, Federico Fellini, called Eight and a Half. It's about a director struggling to figure out the idea for his next film. And with that, I'm going to pair, somewhat timely, the directorial debut from Tim Burton in 1985, starring Pee-wee Herman, called Pee-wee's Big Adventure, in which I see some connective tissue shared with Eight and a Half. And we'll talk about what's going on in my mind when I say that. Cool. Never seen either of these, Brian. This will be new for me. Yeah, well, all four of these were new to me. I'd never seen any of the stars are born. Now I have. I had only seen the 2018, so yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much, listeners. And I'm looking forward to speaking about those next week. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everybody. Join our Discord. Thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. And we hope you hear us next time.